another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. You know, I do a lot of uh, public speaking. I've taught some classes. Uh, and, I, you know, I look at my, my lectures and presentations as, you know, pedagogical uh, events. You know, I do kind of feel like I'm sort of in a teacher role. Uh, but I've, I've become increasingly dissatisfied with throwing ideas out, not because I don't love the ideas or love the practice, which I, which I do, but it often seems um, sort of unclear exactly what the point is or what the, uh, what, what the goal is. And when I think about some of the most satisfying teaching experiences that I've done, they actually almost all involve not just ideas – or pre- presentations of information, or you know, interesting juxtapositions of film clips and ideas, and et cetera, et cetera, which again can be really fun. But really, the most satisfying things I've done have been involved in practices. Whether I'm teaching writing, and I mean like nitty gritty stuff, where you know your you know sentence construction and you know how to how to frame the act of writing and things that. Whether or not the people absorb that much of it, they absorb something. And just somewhere in the world, writing is better. Just a little bit. Writing is better for the, for my labor that day. And the other example is uh, is the few times that I've taught um, meditation or uh, sort of consciousness practices, attention practices, uh, which I've done both with my my wife Jennifer and and on my own but just a handful of times when the situation has arisen. And it's a strange feeling because in some ways, even though I've been thinking and writing and reading, you know, endlessly, you know, <laughs> seemingly, certainly since, you know, college, um, and really devoted to that sort of in, uh, intellectual world of words, um, it's not always clear what I feel like I really know. But I, I, when, I'm, when I'm talking about meditation, either informally or the few times I've, I've taught it, I know I... I, something has happened in me. Like it's it's real. It's like you can cook an egg. You couldn't cook an egg. You can cook an egg. It's not a big deal, but there is something really you know tangible that's changed, and there's something really tangible that's changed in me, having been a uh, uh, a dailyish, which is a, a a new word that I've gotten from our our guest book today. But more on that in a second. Being being a dailyish meditation practitioner for. 25 years. Uh, and yet I often feel kind of uncomfortable talking about it because even though it's meditation and, and, and that kind of practice is rooted in my, um, my guts, you know, rooted in my everyday experience in, in arguably even more intimately than my knowledge and reading and passions and intellectual passions. Um, I, nonetheless, I, I always felt a little un- uncomfortable about it because most of the way that one, most of the meditation teachers one accounts are, at least I've encountered, uh, have been, you know, they are either uh, muckety-mucks inside, inside some tradition, they're Zen priests, they're, you know, climbing up the, the ladder at the local Vipassana center, they, they have a sort of mantle of authority <laughs> based on the fancy people that they've sat with before, um, or they're sort of medis- medicalized or they're experts, you know, they're like expert people who, who do mindfulness trainings for corporate seminars or that kind of thing. 
And, and I'm not really in either of those categories. I've done some serious, you know, Zen training uh, for at certain parts of my life. But most of the time I've been what I call a freelance meditator. I've been kind of finding my own way, reading some books. But after a certain point, enough things started to get going. It was kind of clear what the work was. And this is it's been a lot of fun, but it means it's kind of inc- it's kind of incoherent as a path because, you know, I've spent time doing different things. It's not really clear which are the most productive and or even if it's about being productive, you know, it, increasingly it's almost a kind of play or a kind of a combination of a metaphysical investigation and, and, you know, relaxing in a warm tub. And, you know, it's it's kind of all over the map, which I, I personally enjoy uh, and have have you know, achieved a great deal from, but I feel un- sort of weird about how to represent that. If I'm like, well, this is serious stuff. Maybe you want to like bring this out into the world as well as all your, you know, wacky ideas about seventies occultism or whatever the, the current <laughs> obsession of my mind is. And I was going, no, nah, nah, I can't, I can't do that. I'm not really, I'm not one of those guys. I'm not an expert. I'm not a physical religious person, but I know that it is possible because this is what our guest today has done. Our guest today is, is Jeff Warren, who I first encountered uh, many years ago. He wrote a terrific book, still one of my favorite books about consciousness, uh, called Head Trip. He's a great, lively writer with the kind of playfulness of a journalist, but he thinks really hard, or Andy thinks really hard. Of course, some journalists think think hard, uh, but it's always it's always a kind of disguised. As as someone who's often been called a journalist, I realize it can sometimes <laughs> seem like a disguised uh, insult. Uh, but uh, so we got to be friends, and uh, I've had him on the show before, and 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 had some wonderful email exchanges, and hung out a, a, too too infrequently, but. Um, He's really someone who's moved from someone writing about these things to opening up and becoming a meditation teacher, but a meditation teacher with a different kind of flavor and and vibe than the, either of the two modes that I had uh, talked before about the expert or the religious leader. Um, he's the head of the uh, he, he's a uh, Canadian, lives in Toronto uh, much of the year. Although currently we're going to be speaking with him in Costa Rica at a hotel where he teaches meditation and they put him up for a month and a half, which is he gets to surf and have a lot of food and hang out in Costa Rica, which is a marvelous place. So I'm already really wondering why, whether I have made the right life choice to stick to a PhD. Anyway, in addition to such fun things, he, uh, he heads up the Consciousness Explorers Club, which is already like a great framework to talk about you know, a meditation group. Uh, it's it's an exploration. It's an experimentation. We're all in it together. Uh, some of us may have been doing it for longer, but it's it's really an exploration, and that's where we are as, as individuals, but also as a culture, trying to figure out what does it mean. I mean, do, do we have to become Buddhist? Uh, does it work with uh, you know? Can can you be a rampant capitalist and 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 enjoy your mindfulness too? Uh, what does it mean? How does it get represented in culture? We're all exploring the meaning of these profound and transformative consciousness practices uh, as they unfold in our, you know, completely insane uh, contemporary uh, world. Uh, so I really, you know, he, he, Jeff, there's even photographs of him with like a pit, uh, pit helmet on, you know, just like going into the wild. Uh, and that exploration, uh, uh, that spirit of exploration, I think is really um, a key, at least for some of us. Uh, recently, he's he's participated in a, you know, a big fancy 
book, uh, uh, you know, mainstream, clearly going to be a bestseller kind of thing uh, by Dan Harris, who some of you, I frankly didn't remember his name, but I don't watch a lot of news. He's on ABC News. He's an anchor on Nightline, you know, a big muckety muck, but he's also into meditation. And he wrote a book called 10% Happier, which is, you know, one of these gazillions of happiness uh, books. But I admire him for, for calling it 10% happier, 100% happier. And uh, he went, uh, wanted to go out on a kind of a tour uh, to sort of like pick up on the ideas, see how people were, were using uh, meditation, which is part of his. Uh-huh. Hey, I like Jeff. I like the sneeze. That's a good attempt. <laughs> <laughs> You're not muted. <laughs> um, no, it's beautiful. Uh, and uh, and so he uh, he he met Jeff and and invited him along. And so Jeff became part of his uh, his his current project or the current book project, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. So they went out on a on a tour called the Ten Percent Happier Meditation Tour. And uh, Jeff served as what he called as a meditation MacGyver, uh, you know, helping out with the with the nuts and bolts as he interacted with lots of different kinds of people all around the country talking about meditation. The kinds of folks that I don't really that aren't from my background, which is much more the kind of, you know, beat Zen, uh, countercultural, spiritual seeker, more of the old school uh, of, um, of, of, you know, consciousness exploration in, in terms of it emerging from countercultural explorations. And really there's this whole huge world out there of people who have completely uninterested in, in, you know, mystical Hindu terms and, uh, patchouli incense and eating vegetarian and, and, you know, having statues of the Buddha in your room or whatever, like that's, there's just a whole other world of meditation, uh, that's going on out there. So I thought this, uh, the publication of Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics would be a great excuse to bring Jeff, the Meditation MacGyver, uh, back on the show. So, Jeff, thanks for joining us on Expanding Mind. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Um, man, I could just listen to you talk forever. It makes me so happy to be back on this, having this conversation with you, because your you know, just way of talking about stuff is just, uh, it's so rare, and I just love it. Anyway, thanks for having yeah. me on. Thanks a lot, man. I mean, it's a it's a simpatico situation. I mean, I remember when I read Head Trip, I was like, oh, thank God, somebody I could totally actually fully understand and appreciate warts and all. And that's part of what it's about is the warts and all thing. And one thing that uh, that Dan wrote about in, in the book uh, is that is that you were kind of as you sort of became a meditation teacher, is that became something you did in the world, a way that you sometimes, you know, you make money, it becomes like a, you know, you kind of construct a career. Um, and he talked about you being a little reluctant about that role. And I was thinking about my own reluctance, the few times that I've, that I've taught, despite the fact that I have, I'm, I can use words well, and I, I have had a lot of experience. There was this kind of weird reluctance and so I wanted to ask you about how how you kind of became or sort of self-authorized yourself to become a, a meditation teacher. Was it because you felt compelled to do it? What kind of resistances were there? And what did that sort of, how did that illuminate the whole task of bringing these teachings into our world today? Yeah, uh, great question. You know, it's actually, I remember, I don't know if you remember this, uh, maybe when I started teaching, which was I think 2011 or 12, I had I sent out an author newsletter, and you actually responded saying, 
hey, man, I, I, this is really great. I love hearing what you're doing. It's like, I, I think it's so interesting that you self-authorized uh, yourself to start teaching. And I love the way you put it. And it, I remember thinking a lot about it at the time. Um, uh, so happy to talk about that. You know, um, uh, it was a complete, it was absolutely reluctant. And it was a complete, uh, it, it was not intentional. Uh, it started, it actually never occurred to me. You know, and because I had was a writer and I was writing about consciousness, I got into this stuff and I would talk to people about consciousness all the time because I'm a nerd and that's what I'm super into. Um, and then as I got really deep into med practicing meditation, I would love to chat with my uh, fellow meditators and practitioners and my main teacher, Shinzen, who became my main teacher, although I had other uh, friends and other traditions and but even so, through all that, it never occurred to me that I would be a meditation teacher. And I think because I had this idea in my head that somehow this the teacher had to be someone who had all their shit together, you know, who was really um, had really good, you know, mental and emotional hygiene, uh, had good attention, which I didn't even have because I am extremely ADD, and I don't mean that in the kind of throwaway sense in which we all say we're a bit ADD, but I really am. A deeply ADD. I've been diagnosed with it in addition to mood uh, challenges around mood stabilization. And so I've got m real mental health issues and it just never seemed like what I was fit remotely into what a meditation teacher could look like. And then also I wasn't, um, I was very excitable. I, I kind of get mm, hypomanic and dis dysregulated and fly off into strange tangents. And it just seemed very unseemly from a meditation teacher perspective. So I think I just I didn't see myself reflected in those models around me, although I, I should have recognized that there is more flexibility because my teacher, Shinzen, is not exactly your standard meditation teacher either. I mean, he's very, his name's Shinzen Young. He's very kind of virtually on the autism spectrum in terms of his uh, uh, style. You know, he's not uh, at all in the lovey-dovey mode. Um, he only reluctantly came to the kind of loving kindness type practices, although he, he teaches them very skillfully now and was fully won over by them. But, um, but so what happened was he, we just would get into these long conversations about consciousness and he could see that I was, uh, I, I was really interested in the subject. I, I seemed to understand the subject quite well. And he would just encourage me as he encouraged actually everyone, whoever attends his retreat to, to stop thinking about teaching meditation is this grandiose thing, but just that, first of all, everyone who begins to become a meditator uh, becomes a teacher in a sense. I use the word teacher loosely. Maybe we could come up together with a better word because I think it's so loaded, that word. But becomes the way he meant it is as you start to internalize uh, into your nervous system the benefits of the practice, you get more open and less reactive and more it's sort of available to people around you and people notice and that has an influence both uh, as a way to kind of uh, interest people in the practice themselves but also in a, in the kind of more interesting sense of how the social contagion sense that the vibes you put out uh, the, the friendliness the openness start to kind of affect the people around you and so you become a sort of subtle teacher he would say um, and he thought that absolutely was an important form of teaching and then from there, he thought you could, why not become a little bit more explicit and teach one person how to practice? Because one person, one day is having a bad day, you know, they're overwhelmed or something. And you say, hey, you know what, I'm not being remotely 
uh, trying to sell you on this, but here's a technique that might help. Try it out. You know, that, that kind of an idea. And so I started doing that. And um, I started the CEC, the, the Conscious Explorers Club, really as a, as a place we get together and other practitioners from other traditions. And we would talk about our experiences and we lead meditations for each other and trade back and forth. And there was no uh, pacemaker guru. I mean, I was sort of the one who started it, but uh, my buddy James was in it. My friend Aaron, other, my friend Abby eventually joined, who's more of a devotional Abrahamic guy. And we just, you know, uh, we would just play around. And then as more people came to me with questions, uh, asking how things would work, I would answer them or I would start, so I, I became entered into more of a leadership role there and the whole thing just sort of merged organically without ever, you know, ever really, and all of a sudden I looked around and I'm like, oh, guess, I guess I'm doing this. But, and, and it was still, it was still weird for me. In fact, I remember going to this Dharma teachers conference and everyone was standing up and they tell you what they, 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 they say what Hinayana, what lineage they are. So Hinayana, uh, Mahayana, Vajrayana, um, whatever the one is for all the yanas, I forget what it's called. Um, and I remember just standing there with my buddy James Muscalic, who started the CEC with me, and we were kind of looking at each other like, "Well, what fucking yana are we? You know, are we <laughs> are we even Buddhist? Because I don't even consider myself a Buddhist at all." Um, and uh, you know, and so this question is still very alive for me. And there's a lot I'd love to unpack here, both around thoughts around what it actually what, you, what we really are teaching and how we can be teachers with ADD exploratory all over the place practices because in the average teachers uh, ideas or certainly in the old school teachers ideas that's just a disaster you need to commit to one technique one path which I don't think is true uh, so talk about that you can talk about the talk about the culture of Buddhism you know we yeah. can talk about the no, it's stuff around teachers you know there's a lot it's so it's so ripe i mean i guess that the thing that that starts off that i'd like to to go into is the direction of how how limiting our ideas of what meditation opens up uh can be because of the emphasis on lineage and religiosity really um in terms of buddhism in america and equally uh, in my experience on the other side in terms of this kind of functional good for you expertise and meaning that like the sort of secular side of like psychologists who are teaching mindfulness in order to achieve very specific ends all of which may be true to some degree although there's there's hype there like there is in all medical fads and it is a medical fad right now um, and I think that some of that faddishness also obscures both some of the challenges of meditation, valuable challenges in some light, but in some ways also just things you might want to avoid. But it also avoids some of the, let's call them metaphysical questions that are traditionally treated in, in the religious form, although again, often in somewhat somewhat limited ways. So like just that idea right off the bat, you need to stick with a particular practice. And this was again that I I carried guilt for years because once I was no longer, and even to some extent when I was in Zen, and and frankly the re the reason I I went to Zen, I'll I'll do do the brief story is I started out serious practice uh, in a Tibetan kind of regimen because I was very attracted to the philosophy. So I was like, great. Oh, they're actually using, they're not just making puns and weird puzzles. They're like, here's the philosophy. But the meditations that I was getting from that particular teacher were so structured. And it's like, think about that. You're going to die. And the only thing you can hope is this and how grateful you are to have a human life. And I'm like, what the 
and all the stuff that relies on the ideas of karma, which I don't even really believe. So it didn't make any sense to me. So I liked Zen and I started going to a Zen place just because they left me alone. And maybe there was some idea that I should have been, you know, breathing on following my breath or doing a mantra or not a mantra, but doing like a, you know, a koan work or whatever. But I, you know, I just, they left me alone. It was like a nice structure. So I immediately just took that as a kind of anti-authoritarian as like an excuse to explore. So my, my practice over decades, again, was all over the map. I mean, for years I was doing something that now I would describe as putting myself into a semi-hypnotic trance that had elements of, you know, um, hypnagogia and kind of weird visionary states and sort of strange, almost psychedelic experiences or whatever. And at the time I was like, yeah, I'm really, I'm opening up this whole thing. And now I can go like, well, in a way you were kind of just putting yourself in a trance. And indeed the whole question of the relationship of trance to the meditation states is a very interesting one when you think about it, because uh, it's sort of a one man's trance is another person's, you know, samadhi uh, gets into the picture. But I, it's, and I say that not to say that I was therefore, oh, I was misguided and I, I wasted time. And I, that idea, which you, you see people talk about, like, oh, until I found this teaching about, until I found Dzogchen, I was wasting my time on gradual practices and what, you know, da, da, da. and I'm like, I didn't waste my time. I'm a consciousness explorer. I, I know those <laughs> realms. I can go there if I want mm-hmm. to. And my current guilt and so over the decades, I would go all over the place, you know, and even in a given meditation, I'd sit down. I didn't have a plan. I'd start out. I'd follow my breath. Oh, maybe my mind's busy. I'll keep following the breath. Okay, it stopped. Now what? I don't know. And then something would come, maybe an impulse. Sometimes I would keep doing what I'd been doing the day before. And, it, it, you know, and I was always a little guilty about it, but I was like, fuck it. This is, this is my anti-authoritarian gesture because I believe, like you, that, there, that there's, for some of us, who, whether it's because we're ADD or because we're novelty junkies or because we we are constantly like we're multidimensional in some way, whatever. This is our particular mess. You know, the, some people, they stick to the same thing every day at the same time. And that's their mess. They're, that's their type A, you know, uh, neurotically uh, anal mess. You know, so we all have our, our messes. <laughs> but my current one, which I want to share with you uh, is like is is what you could say is an almost diametrically a, a a purpose of meditation that's almost diametrically opposed at least to its metaphysical aim, which is that uh, I I not infrequently wake up in the middle of the night with anxiety, and I'll sit there oh here we are again in in, in uh, you know insomnia space three in the morning four in the morning, and now what I do uh, is once I you know determined that I'm not going to go back to sleep anytime soon. I get up and I meditate. And it's great because I get to get a, I get a 4 a.m. meditation. So all of the everyone's asleep. It's very quiet. Just a few cars. It's wonderful. And, you know, the kind of psychic environment is settled. So it's a wonderful time to practice meditation. And I'll do it. I'll practice my meditation. And at first, it's like ferocious how crazy the mind is in that insomnia space of of just chattering on and anxieties and gra- and it's sort of you know it's sort of um, delusional you know and I, I'm in these sort of delusions of like oh my god you got to pay that bill oh my god you better pay that bill soon you might as well get up right now and pay that bill you know so that takes a little while to settle and then I'm in like wow now I'm meditating it's the middle of the mm-hmm. night this is great I'm enjoying it I'm you know wonderful 
And then, you know, I'll go, I'll do that for, you know, whatever, half hour, 40 minutes or something. And then I'll go like, okay, it's time to go to sleep. And I'll drive my awareness down and I'll sink into that hypnotic, hypnagogic space until I start to get hypnagogic images like, oh, good. Now I'm kind of going to sleep. And then I'll just get up and go back to bed and have delicious sleep. I, I have these wonderful, <laughs> restful, dreamy, yummy, super yummy sleep. But it cracks me up because it's like, you know, I have my inner Zen master uh, super ego going like meditation is to wake up, <laughs> not to sleep. <laughs> But you know what I mean? I mean, it's, you, you, you emphasize yeah. that in the book. Talk about it. It's like free-range meditation. It's, it's multidimensional exploration. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, there's so much to say about that. Um, uh, first of all, just to say about your, your, your current practice, you know, um, I have a whole chapter on this in, my, in the head trip, you know, about the watch, about waking up in the, in the middle of the night and how there's a lot of thinking around that sort of, you could think of that as an older ancestral form of sleep that kind of re reasserting itself, but it's natural to have to wake up in the night, not necessarily you know, riveted with terror <laughs> and anxieties, but that there is this natural fragmenting in, in sleep between the cycles. Um, and that, that a lot of people traditionally slept this way. And actually that was considered a time for prayer and for rumination and uh, meditation. And so you're actually doing something that has a, its own kind of lineage. Um, and uh, so that's just interesting to me. And then you also have high levels of prolactin in the brain at that time. So it creates this interesting kind of uh, ecological, <laughs> this sort of eco-climate, chemical climate in your brain. But, uh, but to get what, to your – sorry, go ahead. Wait, wait, just, just to interrupt. What is prolactin? What is the, what's the uh, association so with that? Prolactin is kind of associated with roosting chickens <laughs> and uh, lactating mums. And there, there was a famous study by Thomas Ware when he put people to sleep for a sort of 12-hour New England evening – uh, over a series for a month, they would sleep for 12 hours. They were, they were put into a room for 12 hours of pure darkness. And during that month, all of them uh, shifted their sleep rhythms into this bimodal sleep pattern. And, and he would be uh, collecting blood samples and looking at the hormone levels of their brains and all kinds of other measures. And one of the things he found was that this really high level of prolactin in the brain at the time when these folks would wake up, and it, and it seemed to account for this sort of peaceful quality, this sort of like like a roosting chicken, just chilling out there in the middle of the night. And there, there wasn't, if you could learn to accept these wake-ups as natural, which is the key, then actually it afforded a very peaceful and wonderful time for, uh, to just be, to kind of, and you often came, woke up out of a dream, sort of kind of think about your dreams and ruminate on that kind of dream consciousness. And it was sort of this intermediate zone between these two different states. Um, and, and prolactin was the sort of hormone signature that, uh, um, so just thought I'd throw that out there <laughs> if yeah, anyway, no listeners, it ever happens to, but, um, but your the bigger question and, you know, you've already answered it in a way, uh, which is that, uh, different strokes for different folks, uh, for some people are wired to really, it's absolutely true that one practice, one kind of one tradition, one teacher is going to be the, what's going to really work for them, you know, and there's, I know lots of people like that. Uh, even those folks will need times to maybe switch up techniques or take a new approach because whatever what happens in a practice is you create a habit out of your practice eventually and it, it's a good habit at first and after a while it starts to create a blind spot you know because it just gets hardened up and eventually you need to kind of see through your own practice regimen in a way and so even with people on a single track that is a classic thing people talk about teachers talk about 
Um, but there are also types who are more like you and I, who are more interested in exploring different kinds of paths. Shinzen talks about it as being poly-spiritual, which I think is not a bad term. Um, and, you know, and, and so the question becomes if you're more of that exploratory type, which is a legitimate type, and that's who you really are, uh, I don't think anybody on the planet is excluded from connecting more deeply to their own existence, which will really what these practices are, are for, and if you really think about it from the big, big picture. So there is exactly a right practice for you, no matter who the fuck you are, no matter how screwed up you are, no matter what kind of issue you've got on, there is a way in which you can work, use, leverage your exact nervous system particulars to find a practice that works for you. Um, I believe that more than I believe anything, you know. But it, uh, for me, the breakthrough happened when I realized that I wasn't, it wasn't about finding the right technique. It was about uh, understanding the skills that are being built in all techniques. Because once I could understand that, once I could see what it was, what a practice was doing uh, in the deeper sense and how it worked in the deeper sense, then I could just, whatever I was doing, whatever random weird thing, and, and my meditations now sound a lot like yours, I mean, a little different, but I do, I jump around between techniques. I, I constantly playing and trying new things. And, but when I'm doing those things, I'm doing two things. I'm, uh, I'm deliberately making sure that I'm cultivating these qualities, which I can unpack and I think would be fun to do so. Uh, and then on the second thing is I'm trying not to fool myself. I'm looking at my own life and saying, am I happier? Am I, or whatever my intention is for my life? Am I more connected to my wife, to my friends? Am I, do I feel like I'm living a life more meaningful? I'm more in the flow of what I want to do because that's the litmus test. You know, the litmus test isn't any of the weird shit that's happening on the cushion. You know, you could be in the most drowsy, trancy, weirdest practice ever, ostensibly, if you were to describe the report. But you know what? In some wonderful, mysterious way, it's having this fantastically rich and beneficial effect in your life. Well, then you know it's a it's a good practice to be doing. Although teasing apart what part is how that's happening because of the practice and versus other variables, you know, it's a, it, you can see how it would get endlessly complicated. But I don't think anybody is allowed to kind of speak to what someone's, what kind of experience someone is supposed to be having in practice, you know. Yeah, um, I think that that's, that's really, really well said, and it totally fits, you know, the reality of neurodiversity and what does it mean yeah. to accept that we have these different nervous systems, which is the way we have different personalities and different, you know, the, that, that zone. So, but, I, but I, I'll pick up the bait. What, what are those kind of across the board qualities that you are that you find yourself cultivating in the midst of different kinds of practices. Sure, well, I'm happy to talk about four, four or five that I do, but just to frame it first of all, I mean, this is this is a wonderful thing to explore with you actually because I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I think there are any number of skills we could say that we're building um, in traditional Theravada Buddhism, they talk about the seven factors of enlightenment, the seven factors of awakening. So these are seven factors of mind and heart that are set. It's said when all those factors are, in a sense, activated, being exercised and are active and are perfectly balanced, then you have the perfect, in a in sense, the perfect enlightened mind. Um, and those factors are concentration, equanimity, curiosity, energy, joy, um, tranquility, mindfulness. Um, so that's kind of the original, that was, that's one map. Um, my teacher Shinzen, he kind of simplified it and he gives three skills. He talks about three attentional traits, concentration, clarity, and equanimity. Um, and that's kind of how, how I work, but I would also add in, I try to add in enjoyment <laughs> because 
what, what I want to be enjoying myself. I'm a hedonist. I mean, I'm not going to sit there and just like eat my vegetables. I'm trying to find a way into enjoying the practice. Uh, and then the other one is friendliness, which is sort of um, an attitude of, uh, of you know, compassion and kindness to whatever's going on in my experience and including myself and the little weird components of my experience. So the little imagery I have, the, the self-critical talk, all that stuff. So, so those are two, but the, I'll unpack the, the three biggies, although they're no bigger than these ones, the ones I just said. Uh, concentration is, uh, I would define it as it's our capacity to stay in, with our commitments. So you commit to the breath, um, mind wanders, you bring it back. You, it's, it's this ability to commit your attention in a particular direction and hold it there. So it's not about trying to penetrate or strain. It's just being able to hold your direction. And that is a great skill. It leads into uh, the zone, flow states, all of that stuff is about being able to commit to, some, to a task, to a, uh, an activity, to a person in a way that allows you to get more and more one-pointed with it. It leads into those trance states of merging and very delicious stuff. Um, so that would be concentration. The clarity is the um, really the classic mindfulness skill. Um, it combines kind of mindfulness and curiosity, but it's about being able to make uh, discernments about what's actually happening in your experience. This is this is the progress of insight. This is the main thing I teach. You know, this idea that we're uh, we're kind of riding along in a sense in the surface of our experience, responding to things, but that there's a lot of implicit activities that are and implicit dynamics that are happening that we don't see that are influencing our reactivity and our prejudgments around stuff. I mean, I know you know this stuff backwards and forward. So the, the, the clarity is around being curious about that, starting to notice what is, what your thoughts consist of the imagery, the inner talk patterns, the, the little winces and bracings and rigidities in the body, all the subconscious material that we learn with an insight practice, the more we spend time, uh, kind of percolating on that material, the more we can actually bring our awareness down into those uh, sort of nether regions in a way that's incredibly interesting and cool. So, so, so clarity can be many things. That's the clarity part that I'm interested in. Like, what is the sub, what subconscious parts of me are operating, and can I bring them into the light a little bit? Um, and then finally, there's the equanimity piece, which is my sort of the thing I'm obsessed about because I'm so naturally non-equanimous. <laughs> um, and uh, it, the equanimity is. Uh, this, well, Shinzen describes it in a particular way that I really like. He really, his metaphor for it really landed for me. It's this idea of um, not pushing or pulling on your experience at all. So this kind of smoothness, this openness to experience, this absolute lack of bracing or rigidity. And when you can open in that way, that's when all the crazy, mysterious shit in a practice happens, which I'm hoping we can get into. Um, the stuff that they don't talk about in your MBSR class, but they should. If they knew better, they would, you know, if they knew how to do it, uh, the stuff around purification, around um, uh, pattern, patterns and habits kind of getting themselves worked out um, and or shifting and updating themselves in a more healthy way. But ultimately, the more equanimous and open you are in the moment, the more the moment itself expands and opens, the more this fucking mystery opens you up and swallows you in. <laughs> The sense of the, the mystery of the moment, this place, the, this, everything about this reality, it's available to you, but our, our lack of equanimity, our struggle, our, our, our dukkha, our tension is what obscures that stuff. Um, so those are three qualities, and then the, the, attention, the, the enjoyment, the friendliness, those are 
five qualities that you could say I try to find no matter what I'm doing in my practice. And then I would just yeah. add a sixth one, that sixth one just for fun. I put the called the X factor quality and it's related to the equanimity, but it has to do with, it's the, what the hell is going on? X factor. I got to know reality factor. It's the, why am I asking these stupid questions about why my own existence and nobody else is, but still I am. And what can I know about my reality right now? And can I, you know, it's that Zen hair on fire, need to practice, need to know existential inquiry piece that I think is actually what's behind a ton of philosophy, a ton of the arts, a ton of a lot of stuff. And that is for me, definitely something that's probably the most important factor to have front and center if you want to use this, this practice for liberation. And I don't mind saying that word and unpacking that as well. So, Well, I mean, but that, that's, well, I mean, just to reflect a, a kind of general comment about your, your approach, those were, you know, incredibly helpful and concise and workable uh, definitions and points of, of, um, of engagement. Um, and just one of the things that I appreciate about the style that you bring in is you know you're 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 very grounded you're very secular um you are, are interested in brain science it obviously plays an important role in all of this and yet when i listen to you i hear to use an you know an, maybe a too old fashioned term but you know i mean it in a more existential sense a seeker and mm -hmm. so i don't hear uh someone a, a, an utter pragmatist which is the problem i you know i feel like People like us, meditators like us, are are kind of navigating the skilla and charybdis between religion and mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, ex pragmatic expertise, or where everything is really about making your life more what your ego thinks it wants, or being better at your workplace or whatever. And I've read into some of the mindfulness stuff as it goes through the you know the kind of corridors of power, and um, you know obviously I it's a it's a complicated issue about. How do you, how you think about that that world? But one thing that I notice is that there's very little X factor. In fact, the yeah. X factor is almost intentionally um, submerged because it is precisely in the X factor that you get people going. You know what? I think I want to live my life totally differently. You know, I don't actually <laughs> have to have this job, or actually, this is not in accord with my in integrity. And those are all real possibilities within this practice, even if you start out because you have headaches or you're, you're, you're too scattered or you're depressed or whatever, like functional, pragmatic reason you might start, start these things. My belief is that especially if the proper kind of models and frames and stories around you are set up, uh, you know, discussions like this or, or, or the, the, uh, Meditation for fidgety skeptics is a good example of something that's very mainstream on some level, but isn't just this kind of pressure on the entrepreneurial self. I think a lot of things can start um, opening up. So I just wanted to kind of offer that as a reflection that I really appreciate that you would then still use the word liberation. And we could go in and talk about what that means. But it's certainly a marker of something about existential authenticity, about the, the integral, and about metaphysical, philosophical exploration. Not, not philosophy is just playing with uh, concepts and schemas, though that can be useful. But philosophy as a, as a love of wisdom, of, as, of, a, of a deeper intimacy with the question and and the the the, the practice of, of mm -hmm. inquiry as much as insight because insight you say insight mm -hmm. it always means there is an insight there's something i'm getting but inquiry 
it's endless. You know, yeah. it's endless. Yeah. No, I mean, actually, the, I think of the progress of insight as also being endless. And a lot of uh, contemporary teachers that are kind of on in my mold would sort of describe it in the same way. Yeah, so they're point. almost they're almost interchangeable in some ways, but they have different emphases. And just to say also, as I know, you know, a lot of the ancient Greeks considered the whole point of philosophy was to harmonize the mind and body, harmonize mind, body and world. They were practices. You know, they were intended to create that kind of alignment in your life. They weren't just things that you were, to, you know, just waxing on about at the sauna with the rest of the bearded dudes, you know. It was, uh, so I, I think connecting, recognizing that in some ways, I think of philosophy is emerged from these more fundamental kinds of issues and questions. They weren't just these abstract things to ponder the way it's written off nowadays. They were things to live. Uh, and to explore what living meant. And, and I know this is a, a subject of yours, so I, I, so fun to talk about. But I just wanted to say one thing about the X factor and the reason. I almost wanted to, to uh, just to take the point of view of the secular mindfulness world for a moment. Um, you can hardly blame them for not use, knowing how to even begin to go there. Some of them, first of all, don't even know that you can go there. And those that would want to go there, all they see is the jargon of spirituality around them, which has been so codified into its own particular vocabulary and language that often, you know, you don't even know what the X factor is underneath it because you're just getting this wall of terms and terminology. And, 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 the, and the real problem with the spiritual scene, especially the New Age scene, but all spiritual scenes, Buddhist scenes, Hindu scenes, you name it, is that there's this endemic uh, inability to separate the experience from your interpretation of the experience. So if someone has a deep experience of oneness, of God, of whatever it is, which is an le absolutely legitimate and beautiful thing a human being can have, and we need to start talking about that and saying it's okay, just like William James you know, kind of led the way 100 years ago. But then they immediately go into, and this means this about reality. And, and of course, I understand, because I have those experiences all the time, that it does feel exactly like that because the very experience is about the nature of those experiences to feel like you had under some, you understand something more fundamental about how your mind works, about the way reality works, that there's a fusion between the inner and outer, between self and world. Um, but at the same time, I think the skillful move, the one my teacher does, the one Bertrand Russell did famously in his famous essay about mysticism is to say, okay, we can say that these experiences are some of the richest that a human being can have. They're deeply meaningful. They're wonderful. Let's celebrate them. I really think, you know, that this represents the best of humanity, and I do, and so did, so did Russell. Uh, but let's, do we have to say that this represents a truth claim about objective reality? We can't know if it does, because we, who, how would we make that claim? <laughs> we're, at what point are we getting outside ourselves to be able to see the objective reality that we're claiming is true, you know? So if you just had a little bit of um, uh, existential uh, humility there and said, okay, it feels like it's an understanding that's more fundamental about reality, and it's leading me to more happiness and more value and more meaning in my life, and that's wonderful, but I don't need to go and say that I now know the answer and I'm going to walk around in a robe up and down the street and try to convince everybody else of the answer. That's where you lose, I think, a lot of the secular types. And so I know my interest, and I, I know yours is, is similar, is to be able to have a conversation that says, hey, let's, we need to want to include the spiritual dimension of experience in this larger conversation with the whole, with the, the intellectual mainstream, with the secular world, whatever it is. And we, can, we feel like we can do it in a way that's not going to lead us down the rabbit hole of all these assumptions where you feel like you've got to check your rational brain at the door. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. No, very, very well said. I mean, I, I don't want to get in. We we have, you know, 10, 15 minutes left here, but I, and I don't want to get in the topic of, of, uh, of, of psychedelics. Um, I was, I was just <laughs> in a, in a grumpy, uh, uh, Twitter battle with, uh, a, a Buddhist who was so opposed to these ideas about how they, how psychedelics and Buddhism might fit together that, that he was just, you know, just calling us all idiots and, druggies and stuff it was like it was like reminded me how kind of a hot button that can still be but just the one point i want to make is that one thing that's good about including psychedelic experiences as part of this larger process of spiritual inquiry is not because they are the same thing as mysticism or the same thing as meditation or whatever but because precisely the opposite is because when if you have had the experience of having profound you know, cosmic insights or interdimensional travels or whatever on psychedelics. And then you wake up the next morning and go like, what the heck was that? That was crazy. You actually <laughs> learn to begin mm-hmm. to have that skepticism, at least in my experience with people around me, is that you actually go, wow, my mind is such that in certain circumstances, things like this that are filled with certainty, with messianic mm-hmm. conviction, with all of these things can happen. And there's clearly something productive and insightful and the and if i if i work with the residue it can be very useful in in my ordinary life but i also know that i can't trust a sense of certainty any more than i can you know trust the the dream i had last night and so it actually helps get to the place that you're talking about which i think is really key and i think is the in a way the most important element of the sort of skeptical turn inside of consciousness exploration is to recognize that the language and stories that you use to understand and ground your experiences are themselves moving targets, that they're part of social, of history. They're part of social construction. They're not entirely socially constructed. It's not entirely just a crazy figment, but it's not the same thing as you know, a truth claim or a propositional claim inside of science or inside a philosophical system. It's just not. And that's it, once we get that, when we can get we can keep going on. It's not like it stops the conversation. Uh, but I yeah. think that's a really, really key kind of crossroads point in individuals and in the discourse around these things that we, we need to go through. I could not agree more. I mean, the, the great gift of psychedelics for me has been exactly that it's been the humility actually to be able to see that you actually don't have a clue not only do i have to learn to be skeptical of what i'm experiencing but but my all my ideas about where i think i got it figured out because it just shows you that you don't know a damn thing and that's kind of one of the essences of the some of those experiences has been for me and that is very refreshing so you come back to your world taking yourself a little less seriously um but you know just and also just to take up on your very last thing you said the thing that's so wonderful about science is the history of science is a history of how what we admit as fact, as evidence changes. It's continually expanding. What we're now able to see is as is, is, is valid as evidence within a scientific framework is much bigger than it was 100 years ago. God, with the quantum weirdness and Einstein's relativity and all the other stuff to say nothing of all the weird things happening in biology uh, it, you know, science is a steady march outward, we could say, or the progression of human knowledge of learning how to uh, incorporate and honor new kinds of evidence. So we're at this really interesting juncture in our history where we have the evidence of subjective experience, which is a kind of data set. It's a kind of evidence. We don't yet know what kind of evidence it is or how, to, how it matches with our objective criteria and all the old, all the old criteria we've been using. 
there are a lot of people within that Francisco Varela School of Neurophenomenology and others within the contemplative neuroscience and even just regular psychology who are really into championing those first-person reports and looking at ways of uh, trying to create rigorous standards so this can become evidence. And, you know, and there are various standards in which it's already happening. So this is, I find this really exciting. You know, we're on the, the verge of being able to say, okay, so th we're not saying this is exactly a truth claim in the way we used to say things could be truth claims, but we are saying that these are legitimate experiences and that they, they have information in them. How can we begin to uh, honor them in a way that doesn't, uh, in a way that's part of this larger story of the march of human <laughs> understanding, I guess yeah. you could say. Um, yeah, just I, I'm just thinking of one example that you talk about at the beginning of the of the of the book. That's um, you know a kind of basic thing that you begin to learn is to separate in your own experience thought and awareness. And when you first hear that, that these things aren't the same, yeah. uh, you know, you're like, what? That's it doesn't really make sense because you're just in. You're like, okay, I mean, but. That's something that I think almost everybody who sits, you know, who bother, you know, sits for for not even that long will begin to appreciate. So suddenly that distinction becomes a real distinction. It's not the same thing as a claim about, yeah. you know, whatever, how cells divide. But it, it it is something that, you know, resonates thick and long. And then, of course, the finer detail you get, the more. Um, different models you get, which is a whole other topic. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about what, what, one other thing that you mentioned of your your five or six factors that I think gets the least attention and is the most important, not necessarily more important than the other ones, but actually sustains those other ones, at least in my experience, is enjoyment. Yeah. Um, I am also a hedonist in that sense, and to some degree in a philosophical sense. It's a, it's a tricky word to use because the, the conventional use of the term is not what I mean. Uh, I mean it more in an Epicurean way, but that that aside, that that whatever whether or not you think enjoyment is a valuable axiom for a life, it is very useful for everything that we've been talking about. Oh yeah, because there's so much enjoyment, not just in the sense that oh, event, hey, stick with this kid, you'll be having bliss states that are better than orgasms. Let me tell you, you know, <laughs> yes, that's true. But it's more that you learn how to enjoy more. Like, exactly. because I enjoy attention itself, I can enjoy some, not all, some terrible smells. Rotten garbage, court dead, you know, animals. I can go, wow, huh, <laughs> mm, whoa. I mean, I, it's, it's like a rush or not, but that's, that's too intoxicating. It's just, it's, it's, there's something about attention's own ability to enjoy itself. And if you get that going, then concentration, yummy clarity. Oh my God. Equanimity. Beautiful. Because I can bring that mind to everything, which is sort of like, rather than going, I need to create equanimity. I need to feel that whatever's happening is fine. You know, it's like sort of abstract and kind of seems kind of impossible. But if you start to just enjoy awareness, then when it's shit, you're sometimes, not, not a lot of the time maybe, but depending <laughs> on the degree of shit, but there can be that like, wow, this is happening too. Now you're stuck in traffic. Now look, mm, oh, look how, my example is always the DMV. Like you go to, you go, go to the DMV 
and it's it's going to be it's going to be a drag. It's going to be boring. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be depressing. The whole thing. It's true. But you go in and you're and it's like you're in a VR simulation of a DMV office, and you're like, wow, they did a great job. Look at that sort of bilious color of the stained carpet and that that look of despair on that old man's face. It's like, oh, this this is brilliant, you know. And it's it's sort of a it's a trick, but it's 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 a trick about in, the enjoyment of awareness and of of tasting. You know, just taste it all. It's all taste, and that the mind that can taste everything is not different than that non-dual mind of equanimity. Uh, but it's for people like me, it's a lot easier to to access it that way. And now it's like part of the the mind stream. Not all the time, not as often as I would prefer. But it is definitely part of the mind stream. And so it's like I, I really feel like I used enjoyment, even like I'm going to keep meditating till I feel bliss or I'm going to keep meditating because I want to have a visionary experience, you know, real in, in some ways coarse motivations. I would be OK with to some degree wasn't the only thing, but I'd be OK with as a way to get me back on the pillow. Yeah, well, beautifully said. Um, I, I think actually a lot of what you're describing kind of fits under what uh, traditionally Buddhism they talk about right attitude, you know, and what is the right attitude to bring to your practice, the, the right way to be effortful, the right way to do anything. It's like it's to have this um, accommodating uh, kind of twinkly eyed, good natured perspective as much as possible on the proceedings. So it is a, it's it's kind of like a base of equanimity, which is just kind of being in your being. Uh, being okay with being in being, and then it's just adding that little extra pizzazz on top of that little enjoyment quality, which is just like a shade above neutral. You know, it's it does it only needs to be a hair above neutral, but it's just a, deciding to find this experience enjoyable or some part of it. You know, whether it's the sensation of breathing, whether it's the the, the puke colored wallpaper at the DMV, you know, whatever it is. So that's. That's skillful means, you know, that's upaya. That's just uh, working smart. And I think ultimately, why are we doing all this? What is all this in the service of? Isn't it in the service of being able to enjoy your life more fully so you can help others do the same? Um, you know, and then I, when I say enjoyment, I mean enjoyment in that larger sense of the kind of enjoyment also that comes from a clear-eyed sense of justice around things, around uh, around uh, the world being taken care of the way it needs to be taken care of and the people inside that, around a sane kind of stewardship. You know, those, to me, all relate to that quality. You know, it's, uh, it's not only a purely hedonic dimension. It's, it's the place that allows you to be okay in more and more circumstances, which then it's from that okayness that you then can be more and more effective at making change should, you, should change need to happen in yourself and in the world. So... Hopefully that's not too much of a ADD <laughs> associative link there, but no, uh, no, it's really important thing up. to say because that's you know for especially for people you know really engaged in the in the political side of things and activism and people who are aware of the you know disastrous state of things and there's, there's so much potentially and already reality uh, uh, going on that is you know it's 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 sort of hard almost to think of like what value there would be just you know sitting down and. And particularly talking about, you know, my own experience of my own. And it sounds so narcissistic and navel gazing. And I think it's always important to make that point that it doesn't have to be. And it isn't always the case that it is such. And by the way, if, the, you know, if if and as the shit does hit the, 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 the fan, which it is and always has to some extent, 
then what better you know tools do you want in your toolkit uh, than a capacity to enjoy being even in you know adverse uh, circumstances? We just have a couple minutes left, and and I I wanted to give you even though it's not enough time, just one idea about meditation or about practice or about developing your own practice that you think is is most important to kind of get the word out because it's not enough people are mentioning it and it's preventing people from being able to to practice more uh you, know, you talk about a lot of things in the book because it's designed yeah. for people who are not necessarily going to do this what do you what of all the things you that, that you suggest attitudes techniques what, what would you like to you know offer here at the end uh, well, I would say, I mean, if you're interested in meditation um, and you feel like you, you kind of just haven't found your way into it, the thing that really helped Dan that I actually helped seems to help a lot of my students is just this idea of welcome to the party. Basically, that's the attitude to have, sort of the attitude that you were just describing, that just sitting down and not needing any kind of thing to happen, best as possible, pay attention to a breath or sounds or whatever, but just have this attitude of welcoming everything, of welcoming the distractions, welcoming your own defiantly distractible, uh, skeptical self, welcoming the whole thing, you know, that just that that in itself is a can be a complete meditation. There's entire traditions that just basically have that as their MO, sit down, don't have an agenda. That's the classic Soto Zen piece, just sitting, sit, welcome everything. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that, you know, and that, I mean, just for that as a, as a mantra to keep in your head or a, a something to keep in your head, welcome to the party. I even use it as a noting label sometimes, I'll be sitting and trying to maybe view the breath or it's actually sometimes I do the little imagine a little Buddha in my belly ever since you sent me that in an email. I'm like, that's a fucking cool practice. And I really enjoy that. And I'll get distracted. I'll come back to doing that, but I'll just be welcoming whatever else is going on. And I feel like the fundamental training that I'm giving for myself is this training of being more welcoming to reality, to myself. And that is the, I know for me, that is the basic, my most fundamental intention that I have for a practice. That's the basic, most fundamental training. So the other thing, the other thing I would say is ask that question of yourself. What do you, you know, what is your intention like? What is the most fundamental thing you kind of just want out of life for how for how you want to be? And whatever that thing is, that's what you should be aiming for in your practice, whatever it is. And don't worry about keeping it on the cushion. Just do it, whatever you're doing. Doing it when you're taking a leak or when you're, you know, driving in your car or when you're, you know, in a mixed martial arts tournament. Whatever. That would be what I would say. Excellent. Well, uh, I'll, I, I'll, that's a, that's a great summation. And, and the one little addition or, or twist on that, that you, that you mentioned is the ability to do that everywhere, even for yeah. very short periods of time. Exactly. And, yeah. and in a way that's what I think is, is maybe potentially very radical is that even though that's harder to do initially because you haven't developed the, 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 the muscles, it's, it doesn't strike me as necessarily being any harder than sitting for, for years, you know, at retreats and such. And then at the end of the day, you're actually closer to where we all want to be because exactly. you, you've developed a habit of mixing all the time throughout your life. Whereas I think there's a lot of serious meditators. They meditate for 20 years and the, the turning it into the daily life thing becomes kind of con- – it's, it's hard. It's a different muscle. Totally. I mean – on, on it becomes a true practice when you can bring it off the cushion and spread out in other areas of your life. So you might have an area of your life where you're really good at something. That's great. Spread it out. All right. That's the sound of uh, bye-bye. So, Jeff, thanks so much <laughs> for joining us on Expanding Mind. Okay, Eric. Good to talk. All right, folks. Till next week, keep your minds open. 